Welcome to the 123rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with multiple award-winning science fiction writer, Mike Resnick. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Mike Resnick. Mike is the all-time leading award winner, Living or Dead, for short fiction in the science fiction field. He has won five Hugos from a record 35 nominations, a Nebula, and other major awards in the U.S. and other countries. He's the author of 64 novels, over 250 stories and two screenplays, and the editor of 40 anthologies. His books and short stories have been translated into 25 languages. Resnick's novels include Santiago, The Return of Santiago, Ivory, The Doctor and the Kid, and The Doctor and the Rough Rider. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Uh, glad to be here, and if I can give you just a little update, that's three screenplays and 69 novels and 36 Hugo nominations. It was a busy year last year. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for the correction. So, um, in addition to the novels I just mentioned, you, you've also written two mystery novels, which Peer is republishing for their new mystery novel imprint. Given your extensive experience writing science fiction novels and short stories, what was it like for you writing the two mystery novels, Dog in the Manger and The Trojan Colt? Well, in ways it was easier in that I didn't have to do quite as much research on my background. Uh, both of them start in Cincinnati, where I live. Uh, I, uh, I've, I've used mystery framework for a number five, six, seven science fiction novels. I was, I was used to it. Of course, I grew up reading Hammett and Raymond Chandler and, and, uh, these days James Roy. So I, I was not unfamiliar with it. It was a lot of fun to do. And, uh, I'm just, uh, this afternoon have sent off a uh, proposal for a third mystery in the series. Great. I was just about to ask you if you had any other further Eli Paxton novels planned. So it sounds yeah. Like this uh, it'll be a third one. It'll be coming. I assume. I, first, they have to buy it, but I, you know, <laughs> they asked for it, so I assume they will. Uh, it'll be coming from Seventh Street, and uh, I'm I'm very much enjoying it. I intend to keep uh, keep doing them in my dotage. <laughs> Great. Well, I know when you first started writing novels early in your career, you spent five or six years in the late 60s and early 70s writing 200 adult novels, novels that you wrote and published under pen names. Oh, yeah, probably closer to 10 years. Uh, you uh, you learn an awful lot that way <laughs> when, when you give yourself four days because you feel if you work five days on one of those novels, your brain had turned a putty around your ears. But there, there's always been a field in American letters, seriously, where if you were fast and facile, uh, you could make a living while you were learning how to write, as long as you were willing to write under other names. And in the, in the 30s and 40s, it was the pulp field. In the 50s and 60s, it was the adult field. In the 70s, it was gothics. In the 80s, until it became a huge field, it, it was romance. The period where I think, uh, oh, a third of the romance novels Har Harlequin published were done by a couple of guys who lived in Texas. But um, we, uh, we used them because we didn't want anybody to know who we were or what we were doing. Uh, as long as they spelled the name right on the check, that was the only place we cared about. 
But uh, I was not unique in that. Uh, there's a fellow called Earl Kemp who chaired the 1962 World Science Fiction Convention. I was talking to him the other day, and he uh, at one point was editing Greenleaf Classic Classics, one of the major adult houses. And in one month, he got in manuscripts from me, uh, Worldcon Guest of Honor, Bob Bloomberg, a Worldcon Guest of Honor, Lawrence Block, a mystery grandmaster, and Donald Westlake, a mystery grandmaster. A lot of us learned our trade in that field because you could make a very decent living while you were learning how to write. And when you were writing those novels, were you also wanting to write science fiction, or did you just plan Oh, yeah. I didn't like writing those novels. I was doing it because uh, at the time I wasn't uh, good enough and uh, in truth mature enough with anything interesting to say. Uh, I always wanted to write science fiction, uh, and uh, as soon as I could, I got out of the field. But it was a very lucrative field to leave. I could probably have lost it a little sooner, but I couldn't have paid my bills. <laughs> you have to understand, you, 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 I was, I was consider- a 24-year-old kid with a house on five acres, a kennel of show dogs. My daughter had a horse. Uh, it's hard to replace all that with science fiction. It took a few years. Sure, sure. So, so you really, you really considered those novels kind of practice? Uh, of yeah, that's all they were. They're just just a, a way to make money while I was learning how to write. And and you felt like you you learned and improved as a writer, writing those. Yeah, well, I I would hope the record shows that I did. But yeah, <laughs> I uh, I don't think I've had anything I've written, oh, say since nineteen eighty that's that I haven't been able to sell. Right. And and what led you to ending your career writing those um, adult novels and starting your career as a science fiction writer? What was that process like? Uh, it was just turning to my wife one day and saying, if I do one more five-day book or seven-hour screenplay, my brain is going to run out of my ear. Please, let's do something else. And at the time, we were breeding show dogs. We had a kennel of about 15, 18 collies. And uh, we we were also exhibiting, and we figured, well, you know, if the two of us can care for 18 collies, and I've had time to write all these bad books, what could, what could a professional kennel do? So we went out, and we uh, went shopping and bought the uh, second biggest luxury boarding and grooming kennel in the country. It happened to be in Cincinnati, which is why I live here. And... Um, we bought it in 1976, and by 1980, it was running itself. It had a staff of 21, and I was able to get back uh, to writing what I wanted to write. And I I never thought the stuff I wanted to write would sell very well. And uh, that was another reason for the kennel. And when the writing out earned the kennel five years in a row, we sold the kennel in 1993, and writing's been our sole source of income since then. Great. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the the numerous novels and numerous short stories that you that you've written and, and had published, you, you you've won you know numerous awards and received wide acclaim for your stories featuring African settings and themes, including your stories Kiran Yaga and Seven Views of Olduvai Gorge. When when did you first become interested in Africa? Oh, when I was about ten or eleven years old, I read a couple of books by a man named Alexander Leck. And the books were Hunter's Choice and Killers in Africa. And I'm proud to say that I got them back into print about 40 years later as an editor. Anyway, it always interested me. Africa did. And people say, you know, you know, why, why, uh, why do you keep putting science fiction stories there? Well, the answer is, um, I think anybody would agree that if we can reach the stars, 
we're going to colonize them. And if we colonize enough of them, sooner or later we're going to come into contact with a sentient race. And Africa offers 61, or 51, I'm sorry, separate and distinct examples of the deleterious effects of colonization, both on the colonized and on the colonizers. And uh, since science fiction is basically dystopian, uh, I have been writing literatures of warning about Africa while admiring its beauty and its exoticism for quite a few years. And, and do you remember when you wrote your first uh, African science fiction story? Was that something that, that uh, did you do it with any kind of trepidation, or were you excited that you... No, I had no trepidation at all. As a matter of fact, my was a funny one. When it happened, uh, uh, when everybody knew beta was the better system, I was trading uh, beta tapes with someone else's before they had stores where you could rent them. Some guy um, I was trading with asked me to record She with Ursula Andress. I looked in my mountain guide, and I saw it was like 117 minutes, and tapes back then were only two hours, so I knew I couldn't just turn it on and get the commercials too. So I sat down and watched it and edited out commercials. And uh, my wife came downstairs about 20 minutes later, a little annoyed that clearly I was watching something like a Marx Brothers festival and hadn't told her because I was laughing so hard. And I figured, well, if they could be that funny by accident... I wonder how funny I could be on purpose telling those same kinds of stories. So uh, I, I created a character who I'm writing about six books later, Lucifer Jones, who uh, is a parody of every bad pulp story and B-movie set anywhere except the United States. And then a couple of years later, uh, I uh, took a, a safari, to, the first of many safaris to Africa, photographic, not shooting, and with three stories to tell and started telling them. Great. And and why do you think more science fiction writers don't look to Africa um, cultures and mythologies for inspiration for their fiction? You you seem to be, you know, one of one of the few. Uh, I suppose it helps to have been there, and uh, it's a very expensive place to go, and these days way too dangerous to go. Uh, but. A number of writers have certain areas that, that they specialize in, as I did in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the late George Alec Effinger took Africa you know, from uh, Somalia north, and I took it from there south. Uh, Lucia Shepard has been doing uh, Central America and South America for years. Maureen McHugh uh, at one point uh, put a fence around China and said, this is mine, nobody else is going to write about it. So you know, we all have areas that appeal to certain innate artistic uh, sensitivities within us, and we, and we try and put them on paper. Sure, sure. Well, in terms of the writing process for when you're writing, I, I've seen you mention in multiple interviews that you don't listen to your characters talking, that you're firmly in charge of the story and the plot. Can can you talk right, a little uh, bit about your writing yeah. process? Do, do you outline extensively before you sit down to start writing? Or do I discuss you... it extensively with my wife, usually. And uh, I, I know exactly what I'm going to say, if not exactly how I'm going to say it when I sit down. I can't look at a, a blank screen and get inspiration any more than I could look at a blank piece of paper 30 years ago and get it. Uh, I, I, uh, I know what I'm going to say. And uh, after, I don't know, 300 stories and 70 books or whatever, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at figuring out how to say it, in what order the event should happen, how to set up the story. And uh, to me, um, 
because I've, I've sold so many things, seeing my name in print is no longer much of a kick. The big kick for me is at the, the wrong day, reading what I wrote and seeing that it came out pretty much the way I hoped it would when I sat down, because frequently it's not anywhere near good enough and I have to do it again. Great. And and do you do you know the exact endings of your novels and short stories before you start? Oh, yeah, writing? absolutely. I, uh, you know, everything builds logically to a climax and then frequently to a coda. And if you don't know what they're going to be, I don't know how you can properly build to them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I always know what my endings are going to be. One of, one of the tricks, if there are any potential writers out there, that, that they might consider is when you're finished with your draft of your story, Read it aloud, even if it's in an empty room. I don't mean read it for an audience, but you will find awkwardnesses reading aloud that you never find when you're sitting down editing for proper grammar. And they're not things that will bother you because you just put them down and, and you've just done an awful lot of words, but they'll bother your audience if they get through. And you never want to give the reader a chance to stop and you know, go to a thesaurus or stop and think about it uh, because uh, there's no reason why he might start again. Great. Well, well, for for many years, you co-wrote a column for the Science Fiction Writers of America with Barry Malzberg. Absolutely. Uh, we just handed in our sixty-first. <laughs> and and those columns were collected in a in a recent book, The Business of Science Fiction. I'm curious, has the rapid expansion of ebooks surprised you? And 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 how do you think book publishing will be? impacted by ebooks in the next oh, five I, ten years. I think it surprised everybody. Uh in nineteen eighty five I don't think anybody foresaw ebooks and in the nineteen nineties we knew someday they'd be there, but we, we had no idea of of the the clout they would they would have in the marketplace. And they still don't have anywhere near what they're going to have. But one of the things you can do is you can look ten years ahead from today and say, well, there will be no more mass market paperbacks. And, you know, the reason is, is very simple. Let's say you're a publisher, and you've done the hardcover, you've paid for the typesetting, you've paid for the art. It's time to put out a cheap edition. Now, you can do a mass market paperback, in which case you'll have to pay for paper, binding, printing, shipping, color separations on your cover. You're going to have to give a certain percentage to your national distributor, some to your local distributor. The bookstore is going to want at least a third, probably more. And then you're going to gobble 50% returns, and you're going to need a warehouse to put them in, all for an $8 paperback. Or, since the typesetting and the cover art are done, you can put it up absolutely free for, for no production cost whatsoever on Amazon and Barnes, and the first copy you sell, you're in profit. So what are you going to do? Uh, no way in the world the best market paperback is going to survive. There's always going to be a market, I would say, for, for small press hardcovers, especially, you know, signed, numbered, limited, with special art. But clearly, uh, over the next 10, 20 years, uh, e-books are going to become more and more dominant. And they are. And, and do you think that um, as they become more dominant, do you do you think that, uh, you know, larger traditional mainstream publishers will, will continue to have the clout that they do, or, or do you think you'll see more self-publishing and more kind of independent? Well, th this is the part that I can't foresee, and I don't think anybody can. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, look at the odds, and not the odds of percentage. Well, you know, my publisher will give me 10 or 12% for a hardcover. I can get 70% from Amazon. But my publisher 
gives me an advance to live on. Amazon doesn't. My publisher has a promotion and publicity department, and I don't. So there are, are certain benefits uh, in going with a publisher. Another thing is that somebody can self-publish, and almost everybody can. There's a million books out there that aren't worth the powder to blow them to hell. And you're going to have to establish reputation and a fan following in whatever field you're writing before you can self-publish and have your book differentiated from all the, all the self-published junk that's out there because they couldn't sell it to anyone. Uh, I really don't foresee exactly how that is going to sort itself out. But as I say, I know that the mass market paperback is, is dead, and I would suspect one of the mass market, uh, big hardcover, what we call the sisters, are going to be in some serious trouble. Sure, sure. Well, well, I know that you have edited more than 40 anthologies in your latest anthology, The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, will be published later this year. What's the yeah. process like for you um, in putting together an anthology? Is it pretty much similar across or uh, the anthologies that you do, or does it differ depending on the project? Well, it differs in, in that either you're doing an original anthology or a reprint. Now, The Burroughs is an original anthology, because uh, these are these are all new stories. I I love doing reprint anthologies. It's my way of saying to the uh, audience, "Hey, I loved these stories, and I think you will too." When you're doing original anthologies, first you've got to you almost invariably have to sell the publisher on a theme. Uh, some of them have been pretty far out, like alternate Kennedys. Uh, I edited that in 1991 at their suggestion, actually. And there were 21 different stories about the Kennedy family, none of which ever happened. Uh, once you assign a story, you have to keep in mind that uh, the person writing it never has written that particular story, whether it's alternate Kennedys or Sherlock Holmes in space or whatever silly subject. If you hadn't assigned it, so you're under some moral obligation, if not to buy, at least to give him a kill fee if he doesn't do it well enough. And since you don't want to give out kill fees, because that comes out of your pocket, uh, you choose your writers very, very carefully, and you work very closely with them. Uh, with with the reprint anthologies, it's easier to put together, and I, I find them more satisfying, but they're much, much harder to sell. And it's... The hardest thing of all to sell is an original anthology with no theme, which is just like a large magazine. Book publishers, for some reason, are scared to death of that. They love to be able to tell their sales for it. And, so. and uh, since they got the money and we have to deal with them, we come up with suggestions. And when they say yes, we have an anthology. Great. So do you do you have any others planned but beyond the Edgar Rice Burroughs? Oh, uh, not right now. Right now I'm just too damn busy with other stuff. Since since last summer, uh, I've agreed to add to the magazine, the first issue, an electronic one, but it's professional. The first one comes out, in fact, comes out in two days. It's called Galaxy's Edge, and the webpage goes live in two days, and it's going to be bi-monthly. I'm already working on the fourth issue. And I'm also editing a line of books uh, called the Stellar Guild series. And that one I'm very, very pleased with because um, the publisher uh, came up to me and said, you know, let's do, let's do a line of books. What can we do? And we came up with something that really appeals to me. Uh, 
The Stellar Guild series is a series of team-ups where I get a novella from, which is like 30,000, 35,000 words, from an established superstar. And the superstar himself, not me, chooses a protege to do another novella, either a prequel or a sequel, or at least something in, in the same universe. And uh, they share cover credit. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to get some of these protégés uh, noticed real, real quickly. A lot, uh, they'll get a lot more notice out of these, sharing a cover credit with a Larry Niven or a Kevin Anderson or a Mercedes Lackey than they'll ever get being a name on the inside of a magazine. And we've four of them are in print, and we've got five, six more uh, under contract. And, and between that and the magazine, I just haven't got time to do anything except my own writing. Sure, sure. And who's publishing the Stellar Guild series? Stellar Guild is being published by Ark Manor, and uh, I think on the cover it's Phoenix Pick, which is one of their imprints. Right. And in fact, uh, the uh, Galaxy Online is also being published by Ark Manor. Very glad I, I met this guy a year ago, and very nice fellow too. He, he had a unique idea. Um, this December, about five or six major writers uh, led a workshop that he produced. And we did it on a Caribbean cruise. I mean, if there's, there's a pleasanter way to teach people how to write, I don't know what it might be. <laughs> and we're doing it again next December. So uh, it, evidently enough people came, so he, had, he broke for the profit. Did enough, so that we're doing it again. Right. And the magazine and will see. be available via Kindle and Nook and, and all the usual. Uh, they certainly should be, yeah. Uh, right. I, I don't know anything about the mechanics of them. I know that on March 1st, they go live online, and gotcha. you ought to be able to download them at that point. Yeah. Great. Because I don't think we're going very heavily into illustrations. Nobody's talked to me about yellows, so I would imagine you can download every story. Right. Given your success, what, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? Well, the, the one I give the most often that nobody wants to hear is that, you know, writers write, people are never going to make it. Talk about writing you got to sit down every single day, and you have to write. Beyond that, if you're any good, uh, one, one of the things you're going to want to do is write for professional markets, because even today, uh, writing for a semi-pro scene or a semi-pro publisher is a public admission that your book couldn't compete in the economic marketplace, your book or your story. And uh, they're, they're all, I hear all kinds of wonderful ideas about how, how people are going to get rich doing things that don't involve competing against the best, but it never happened. You know, yes, there's an Amanda Hawking, but nobody can name a second one because she's unique. <laughs> True. And the second they offered her a seller contract, she suddenly became a book writer instead of an e-book writer. <laughs> right. I point that out, too. <laughs> exactly. Um, so do you still read in the field as much as you want oh, to? Oh, sure. Uh, th this field, uh, you have to read in, because with all time and space to play, play with, you don't really want to be telling twice-told tales. Mysteries are a little different. Once It seems that once you create your, your major character, your detective, whoever, uh, they want them again and again and again. And then you have to keep coming up with really unique plots. But uh, with science fiction... Everything should be unique. I mean, you have, you know, three trillion years and eight million worlds to play with. 
and can you can you um, can you recall or or um, what are some of the the favorite writers or stories in the last several years that you've really enjoyed or novels? Well, my favorite writers in this field are Robert Sheckley, who died just a couple of years ago. In fact, uh, I got to collaborate with him uh, just a year before his death. He he was quite the most brilliant humorist uh, we've ever had. Uh, my friend Barry Malsberg, with whom I done these 61 columns and five or six stories, uh, was the finest literary writer in the field for about 20 years. He's, he's no longer writing fiction, but he, he was quite brilliant. And there's a lady from the 1930s I'm just in love with, uh, C.L. Moore. She died about 20 years ago, but, but she was magnificent. Others uh, that, that I like in this field would be uh, a girl called Kitch Johnson, uh, the late George Alec Effinger, the late James White, uh, Rob Sawyer, Robert J. Sawyer, uh, Canadian, a number of others. And then mysteries, I, I think it's much more standard. Uh, Ray, Raymond Chandler, Jad, Dashiell Hammett, Ross McDonald, and that type. And I'm going to add one other. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, he became a friend, the only, only mystery writer ever wrote a fan letter to, and he wrote back, and we, and we became friends, Ross H. Spencer. He died a few years ago. He was quite the funniest writer alive. Um, he he couldn't sell humor, so he disguised it as mystery stories and sold tons of them. Ross H. Spencer, I'll have to look that up. Uh, he did a complete, or actually, I did it, the complete Chance Perdue, character called Chance Perdue, who uh, who was so dumb he couldn't even spell FBI. I mean, if you hit him above the neck, you didn't do him any harm at all. But it was hilarious. He did five of those. And he went on to write for many other places and, and achieve greater fame. But those, those first five books were, were just in the class by themselves. And I, I edited them, and they're in a five-in-one book. Uh, you can get it from Alexander Books. Great. Well, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on a fourth uh, of these weird westerns I have to do for Pyre. It's called The Doctor, which is Doc Holliday, of course, and The Dinosaurs. And uh, as I say, I have just edited, uh, just uh, finished writing The Trojan Colt, which is going to be the second Eli Paxton book, and I just outlined the third one today. Uh, Eric Flint. A, a bestseller who mostly works for Bain Books. He and I used to co-edit uh, Jim Bain's Universe. We have a contract to to come up with a novel uh, for Bain uh, called The Gods of Sagittarius. Eric had had, we actually should have done it a year or two ago, but Eric had had open heart surgery. We, everything just got pushed back on his schedule. I just came out with a book in November uh, with a collaboration with Jack McDevitt called The Cassandra Project, and we're talking about doing another one this fall. And uh, is that enough, or should I? Oh, yeah, I, I've got to do two two stellar guild books uh, where I I'm the leader, and I I work with proteges, and the two proteges will be Leslie Robin, who was a Campbell, that's a Rookie of the Year nominee a couple of years ago, and a Grammy winner, superstar singer Janice Ian, who is my spiritual kid sister. She and I will be doing one either this fall or or a year from now. That's great. And any short stories coming up? Oh, there's all stories coming up. Uh, I, I have, I think, 12 or 13 in press, uh, mostly for anthologies. 
Uh, right at the moment, any shortcut in a magazine will either be in Asimov's, which is my regular market, or it'll be in Galaxy's Edge. I'm the editor, and I'm inclined to like Mike Resnick's stories. <laughs> Great. Well, where can people find you online? Uh, I have a webpage, uh, www.mikeresnick.com. Or they can uh, hunt me up over on Facebook and say hello there and work from there. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Mike Resnick, the all-time leading award winner for short fiction in the science fiction field and the author of more than 60 novels. Resnick's latest novels from Pyre are available in bookstores now. Mike, thanks for doing this interview. It would be my pleasure. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.